in the Philippines under Spanish rule, to be conscripted into a woodcutting crew was almost like being sentenced to death. At that time, every Filipino had to spend 30 to 40 days every year working for the Spanish crown in a system called the Polos y Servicios. Thousands were assigned to lumber camps. If you were one of that unlucky number, you would be marched to the deepest, darkest, densest jungles of the Luzon interior. At the start of your working day, you would wake up at 4 in the morning and hack away at trees with your saws and axes. Some of these trees were more than a hundred feet tall, so high you feel you could break your neck trying to see all the way to the top, and so large that it would take 3 months and 6,000 laborers to cut them down and bring them to the coasts. If you weren't on tree cutting duty, you would be sawing and lashing the logs into timber, then dragging them down the mountain to the roaring gash of a river. Whatever your task, you work through the day, barely stopping for rest until 8 at night, where you would stagger exhausted back to your makeshift tents. Dinner, or any food for that matter, well, you had to hunt or buy your own meals. You stumble into sleep hoping you'd dream of home and wondering how many of your friends would be dead tomorrow. If you're lucky enough to survive at least a month of this green hell, what would you receive for your forced labor? Almost nothing. Royal decrees said that the Spanish crown owed you a just wage for your work but if you were one of the lucky ones and you do get paid, you would only get around 4 to 8 reals for your 30 days of woodcutting and hard work. To put this into perspective, it is estimated that 40 reals a month would be needed in the Philippines as a living wage. But the work must go on. There's always another warm Indio body to replace the last, and more and more trees must always be chopped down because the galleon trade demands it. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we lay out the labor and the lumber that went into sustaining the centuries-long Manila-Acapulco exchange. This is Season 4, Episode 9, The Lethal Cost of Building the Galleons. Magellan may have given the Pacific Ocean a very kindly name, but make no mistake, this wide, almost endless ocean was brutal to the sailors and the ships from Spain. We all know the hardships experienced by the would-be conquistadors, the starvation, the scurvy, the resentment that always threatened to explode into outright mutiny. But the voyage was equally punishing to the ships they rode on. As a historian wrote, any time spent idle in the harsh Southeast Asian climate exacted a toll on the European vessels. Frequent rains and high humidity quickly warped wood, frayed ropes and sails, and rusted nails and chains. Worst of all for Spain's vessels was the damage wrought from worm infestation. Spanish vessels would inevitably arrive in the Philippines leaking badly. Their exposed ironworks 
choked with rust from all that humidity, their hulls riddled with wood burrowing clams. Fortunately for the Spanish explorers limping into their new possession, the Philippines was an archipelago with a rich tradition of shipbuilding. The Spanish explorers marveled at the vast array of ships cutting across the Philippine waters. One Spanish friar wrote, The care and technique with which they build them make their ships sail like birds, while ours are like lead in comparison. The most feared of these Southeast Asian ships was the Karakoa. Think of the Bangka, but huge. The outriggers on both sides were so wide that they could support four banks of rowers. These rowers, combined with a low draft and a tripod mast, gave these Karakoas unbelievable speed. During slave raiding expeditions, hundreds of them could take to the sea, a terrifying sight that would set church bells on the coasts ringing in alarm. It made sense that many communities of indigenous people were master shipbuilders. They lived in an archipelago, and fishing, trading, and sometimes slaving at sea were their lifeblood and livelihood. But the ships crafted in India shipyards were uniquely suited to the islands of Southeast Asia, with their tricky currents, sharp winds, and shallow channels. These vessels would not do for the enormous trans-Pacific voyages that bridged two continents, bringing the wealth of Asia and the Indies in exchange for the silver of the Americas. So what did the Spanish do? They married the techniques, the lumber, and the labor of this new world with the designs and technology of the old. In a dissertation submitted to the University of Hawaii in 2014, historian Andrew Christian Peterson makes the argument that it was the wood and the workers of the Philippines that made the galleon trade possible. Spain had no other choice. What else could they do? They couldn't build ships en masse in Europe and send them west to the Philippines. They'd be rotting hulks by the time they arrived. They couldn't build the ships in their colonies in the Americas either. Believe me, they tried. But the coastal communities of the New World were simply unfit for a large-scale shipbuilding industry. The Manila Bay region, however, was up to the task of supporting full-on galleon production. You had a centrally located port city that way, way, way before the Spanish arrived, was already trading with China. You had the rich, fertile farmlands of Pampanga that could provide all the food you needed to feed your shipwrights and carpenters and sailors. You had deep and dense forests that you could cut down for masts and planks and keels and beams and futaks. And you had a population that you could exploit to go get that wood and go build your galleons for you. It's a multinational strategy that survived up to this day why build your goods at home when you can outsource it all to Asia for dirt cheap? Let's first consider the wood. The Spanish quickly realized that forests of the Philippines could provide some of the strongest shipbuilding materials in the world. In 1619, Captain Sebastián de Pineda was amazed at the properties of hulls made of the lanang tree. It's a wood of great toughness, he wrote, but of such peculiar nature that small cannonballs remain embedded on it, while larger shot rebounded from the hull made of this timber. 
cannonball-proof wooden planks were just the tip of the iceberg. Maria trees, sturdy enough to repel cannon shot, were used for a galleon's main structural elements. Lawan, which was found to be resistant to shipworms, was used for hull planks and sheets. Dongon, which is both tough and tough to work with, was shaped into dowels, chocks, tackle, and hatchway edges. Maria de Monteguas was laid out on decks and used to make oars. And finally, tall and straight guillot trees were chopped down and made into towering masts. The conquistadors arrived to a green and verdant Luzon, but a mere 50 years after the Spanish conquest of Manila, authorities were complaining that you already had to travel far inland to get suitable timber. The historian Andrew Christian Peterson reports that a historical environmental study done on the Philippines found that no species of tree went extinct because of Spanish shipbuilding, but the number of the most valuable trees has been so greatly reduced that their long-term genetic diversity has been compromised. It seems deforestation was already a massive problem four centuries ago. And who were the ones cutting down the trees? Who were the ones bringing the heavy logs to the shipyards? Who were the ones building the ships? And who were the ones sailing them to the new world? Well, the native Filipinos, of course. Spanish numbers were far too small to do all that labor. And really, would you expect the colonial masters to actually do that back-breaking work? Think back to the woodcutting scene dramatized in the first part of this podcast episode. Imagine those thousands and thousands of woodcutters who were made to work ungodly hours for the pittance. Imagine that same number in the lumber yards and in the ship docks, laboring night and day to send the galleon to the sea. Now imagine how much Spain saved by building the galleons with forced labor from the Philippines instead of producing them at home or in the struggling shipyards of New Spain. Actually, you don't have to imagine. We have some figures right here, straight from the Spaniards themselves. A colonial memorandum from 1586 reads, The Indians of these islands are already very skillful at making ships, with the assistance of a few Spanish carpenters. They make them so cheaply that a vessel of five or six hundred toneladas can be built for three or four thousand pesos. Six pesos per ton? Not a bad price, right? Around a century later, a Spanish report on the construction of a ship once estimated that uncompensated labor to the Indias was worth around 150,000 pesos. But on paper, the galleon itself just cost 60,000 pesos. How did the Spanish crown save so much on labor? Well, how do you think? By delaying their salaries, or paying them well below their just wage, or outright enslaving the workers and not paying them at all? If you think this is an exaggeration, consider that many Spanish officials, observers, and even priests repeatedly condemned the abuses in the lumber camps and the shipyards. In 1657, a Manila judge even published 140 copies of a pamphlet denouncing the treatment of shipwrights and woodcutters. This document ran more than a hundred pages. And what of the Indians themselves? Well, they rebelled over and over again. The exploitation, it seemed, had become so bad that the Filipinos had no choice but to take up arms. 
1992, the wreck of the San Diego was found by a French archaeologist and his team just off Fortune Island outside Manila Bay. Sunk in a battle against the Dutch, the ship lay buried under three meters of sand and debris for 400 years until divers, mini-submarines, and a few robots unearthed its treasures. Apart from the motherload of recovered artifacts that are currently on display in the National Museum, the waterlogged bones of the ship also had their own story to tell. This is how Peterson described the findings. The keelson, 17.5 meters long, was made from the kalumpit tree. The stringers of its hull was made from the apitong, a tree similar to kalumpit. Wood from the bitaog, meanwhile, was shaped into the San Diego keel. Each and every one of the ship's wooden components was made from trees in the Philippines. As we might say today, the San Diego, a Spanish ship, was proudly made in the Philippines. But when we imagine its bold, seaworthy lines, its majestic form straddling the ocean waves, let's not forget too, the blood, the sweat, the tears, and yes, even the corpses that very likely went into its making. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. If you found this episode about the galleon trade interesting, I suggest you also tune into Season 2, Episode 1, which talks about the galleon trade's dirty little secret of slave trading. My main reference for this episode was Andrew Christian Peterson's dissertation entitled Making the First Global Trade Route, the Southeast Asian Foundations of the Acapulco-Manila Galleon Trade, 1519-1650. Additional info on the San Diego came from Jose Buhain's article on the racing of the shipwreck. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong Reyes. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at the Colonial Department.